So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to welcome you to this evening's readings, Poetry Reading and Conversation, hosted by Sandeep Palmer. Before I introduce Sandeep, um, I'd like to thank the Arts Council of England because these are the main sponsors of the Ledbury Poetry Festival. So Sandeep Palmer is this year's poet in residence and has been in Ledbury for the past week and I hope you've enjoyed it. She's a poet, writer and critic and the winner of the Ledbury Forte Prize for the best second collection in 2017. She's currently a professor of English literature at the University of Liverpool and her research interests are primarily British and American women's writing of the early 20th century, after my own heart. She describes herself as a BBC new generation thinker and is the co-director of Liverpool's Centre for New and International Writing. Sandeep, welcome to Lebri, and um, I hope you've enjoyed your stay. Thanks so much, Trisha, for that introduction. Hello, everyone. We are in for a real treat this afternoon, evening. Um, it is my great pleasure to introduce both Jay Bernard and Aishan Hutchinson, uh, who will both read. Aishan will read first, they'll be followed by Jay, and then we'll have a bit of a conversation as well. Uh, but these are both poets who I think really engage with lyricism, with history, memory, um, in ways that I'm sure you'll all find fascinating. So I'll just introduce them both in the order that they will read. So Aishan Hutchinson is a poet, essayist, and academic, originally from Port Antonio, Jamaica. He is the author of two poetry collections, Far District, published by People Tree Press, and House of Lords and Commons, which was published by Faber in 2016, and by Farrah Strauss and Giroux in the United States. He is the recipient of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry, a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Joseph Brodsky Rome Prize, the Whiting Writers Award, the Penn Joyce Osterweil Award, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature, among others. <laughs> he is a contributing editor to literary journals The Common and Tongue, a journal of writing and art. Aishan is associate professor in creative writing at Cornell University. House of Lords and Commons is a book in constant dialogue with literary and artistic forebears from St. John Peirce to Herodotus to Derek Walcott and Lee Scratch Perry. Interwoven throughout this is an engagement with the violence of colonialism, its legacy of enslavement, and the capitalist destruction of a Caribbean landscape. Hutchison maps a new literary territory, one that is borderless and timeless, with deep erudition and vulnerability his poems unfix history's grand narratives, and he bravely sings into an unsung past. So I shall be followed by Jay Bernard. Jay is a writer from London. Their work is interdisciplinary, critical, queer, and rooted in the archive. They won the 2018 Ted Hughes Award for Surge Side A, a cross-disciplinary exploration of the new crossfire in 1981. Jay's short film, Something Said, has screened in the UK and internationally, including Aesthetica and Leeds International Film Festival, where it won Best uh, Experimental and Best Queer Short, respectively, Sheffield Doc Fest, and Cinema Africa. Jay is a programmer at BFI Flair, an archivist at Mayday Rooms, a resident artist at Raven Row, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Their first collection, Surge, has just been published by Chatter and Windus, copies of which are on the back table there, um, and it has been shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best First Collection. Surge engages with the contents of materiality of archives held at the George Padmore Institute in London. These records of black British radical politics, specifically in the wake of the 1981 New Crossfire, form the central core of the book. In Serge's introduction, Jay describes this relationship to the archive and the silences from which it speaks thus, I am from here, I am specific to this place, I am haunted by this history, but I also haunt it back. Jay's collection shows an unfailing attentiveness to the framing of history 
through the stories of individuals and collectives which the poet holds urgently, ethically, and so skillfully in their hands. So please join me in welcoming Aishan Hutchinson and Jay Bernard. to you. Um, you're in this room out of choice. It's so nice outside, so you could have stayed out in the, in the beautiful, nice, cool British air. <laughs> um, so, very happy to be here and to be um, with these two friends of mine. And um, this is my first time, of course, not of course, you probably don't know that, but my first time here in Ledbury. And uh, as I was coming here, I was thinking about the, the Midland poet, uh, Geoffrey Hill, who died some years ago. Um, he was born in Bromsgrove. And on the way on the train, uh, that was one of the, the stops. And just hearing that word uh, made me remember the poet uh, who I greatly admire. And when he died, I wrote an elegy uh, for him, which I want to begin with um, today. So I think I could fairly say I have one West Midland poem. <laughs> Maybe when more poets die, I will write more. <laughs> A funeral mask, and it has an epigraph heaviness of the world prevailing. In memoriam, Geoffrey Hill, 1932 to 2016. See the marigolds fired to a prior. At once, a gold ship rising for Kume. No, Bromsgrove, the sun's other margin. Dimly spring, as if in defiance of history, returning to begin again life's oratorio over the wrath of traffic at Hereford and Worcester. But can you hear none of this triumphal fall? Your mind quiet at last shatters into rain showers on ramparts and ruins with abandoned, pricked and shining tadpoles seems to yield signals from the spears, the annual wounding of your name. Um, so continuing down a dangerous path of um, thinking about the English landscape, uh, this is a poem called A London Epilogue. And uh, towards the end of the poem, it, it references a poem by Samuel Johnson called London, which is, I think, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, is his, uh, Johnson's translation um, of a kind of a juvenile's tent satire. And in that poem, Johnson's poem, a figure is leaving London to go to, to Wales. Um, in order to take up a position as a, if I'm remembering correctly again, uh, as a participant in the slave trade. So that's hinted at uh, towards the end. A London epilogue. Six assassins total, more or less in the rain, at every little step, tremble out of the city garden. Headstones steam disaffection. A king rises to our age, rules the unlaureled kingdom. This bland epoch shrouded in misery, six assassins, no less, vanished into the river's cicadas without parliament's knowledge or truth, ours who hate this mournful empire 
the ill-weathered, nervous meridian. Still, we hold faith in the rain. The rain little or too much of what we know rides the Orion-lit boots, the never-condemned metropolis, exalted, remaining quiet. How shame becomes by time and fire architecture, eternized by both in every unsettled puddle, these buildings waver their brutish assurance. Not startled by sirens quiring off like a crack-jawed sibyl, distressed turning her leaves is the theme. Stringent eyes anglicized by priors sputtered from bomb hovels, the tower blocks, priests spruced, glares an emblematic ash-blade moon to make us white with mercy as the dove rain flicker of dawn granulates through spires. We retreat like the hunter, strafed with nettles, back into a stony chaos, back to the alley where a chain link holds up a cardboard pope with horns. His tallies still on his way to Cambria. If so, is he passing through steel coal Liverpool? The ghosted ships return there for repair and supply, stocks for the trade. Slavery first drew breath in English air, aspiring down the coins. These same glowering electric lamps touch shady cloisters' souls from the dominions once wandered in gloom for degrees to people the isle with cool menace, their skull-cool voice clawing for roots buried in the empire's archive, snag on the true mire of unremorseful, mute Albion. Thank you. <clears throat> station. The train, sta the train station is a cemetery. Drunk with spirits, a man enters. I fan knots from my eyes to see into his face. Father, I shout and stumble. He does not budge. After 13 years, neither snow nor train, only a few letters, and twice from a cell, his hoarfrost accent crossed the Atlantic. His mask slips a moment as in childhood, pure departure, a gesture of smoke. Along frighted crowds the city punished, Picking faces in the thickness of morning's hard light that struck raw and stupid, searching, and in the dribble of night commuters, I have never found him, wandering the almond tree's shadows, since a virus disheartened the palm's blossoms, and mother gave me the sheaves in her purse so he would remember her, and then shaved her head to a nut. I talk fast of her in one of my cerebrous voices, but he laughs, shaking the scales of froth on his coat. The station's cold cracks a hysterical congregation. His eyes flash little obelisks that chase the spirits out, and without them wavering, I see nothing like me. Stranger, father, cackling rat, who am I transfixed at the bottom of the station? Pure echo in the train's beam arriving on its cold nerve of iron. And this one is called Punishment. And I think I'm reading it because Jay informed me that they also have a poem called Punishment. <laughs> and it is exactly what we're doing to the audience. So. <laughs> so we're very grateful for your attention. 
punishment. All the dead eyes of the dead on portraits behind her looked down as she ate donuts off a cloth napkin. Her mouth sugared. I saw myself possessed by myself in her glasses milky lens that possessed the globe on her desk. A Quaker gift, the former principal, dead but not yet a portrait, left with Africa spun towards us. She swallowed, then asked, why was I here? I told her for intimations. She stopped mid-true, surplice of sugar dance at the down curl of her lips. She said, excuse me? I continued, for immortality. She looked with cow out of pasture concern. The other eyes scald through me. The clock fell silent, though the second hand wheeled around the white face. For my freshness, she said, you must be punished. You must go out to the cemetery by the chapel, write down every last living name off the tombstones before she arrived. No problem. I knew the dead. I was well off with their names. But, she asked, a fresh doughnut cursing the napkin, if I am clear why she has done this, why she must punish me. The portraits drew one breath. I began, for my rejection of things past, because for my life the green graves by the chapel puzzle me, and the sea outside our classroom, those ships no one else sees, humming, humming, their frail sails join us, though I don't know who us is. She rose, utterly black. I retreated. She filed past the cabinet, upset the globe. I whirled out the door. There, cliffs and clouds, the dark manchineel blinding the path. I bolted down, hardly believing my legs running and leaping above ground, straight down Hector's River Sea Road, flanked by the hushed breaking sea. Thank you. Um, so two more poems. This one is called Marley and Sibelius. One name, of course, immediately recognizable. The other obscure. Sibelius being recognizable and Marley obscure, but it depends. It depends. It, it depends. I don't know. Um, but the, the, these are two composers I admire deeply, um, much for their art, but the ethics that arrive out of their great music, which I find grounded in the, the landscapes of their origin. You know, Marley is Jamaica, Sibelius is Finland. It always is amazing to me how an artist can create such tension of politics um, without at times being very direct. If you put the baseline of a Marley song on, it tells the whole story. And you might not need, um, as, as all the times, the, 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 the lyrics themselves, even though those help to elevate the music into something else, into its urgency. Um, but something about the, the, the form of music has an intensity that makes the political question, the ethics of a, a situation endures behind um, the limitation of time. You know, things get old and so on, but never music. History is dismantled music. Slant, bleak on gravel. One amasses silence. Another chastises silence with nettles, stinging ferns. I oscillate in their jaws. The whole gut listens. 
The air winces white nights in his talons, sinking mire. He wails, and a comet impales the sky with the dual wink of a wasp burning. Music dismantles history. The flambeau inflaming his eyes with a locust plague. A rough gauze bolting up his mouth unfolds, so he lashes the air with ropes and roots that converge on a dreadful zero. A golden age. Somewhere an old film. Dusk soldiers on cold, barren coasts. There I am a cenotaph of horns and stones. And to end, a poem called The Ark by Scratch. Uh, Scratch being um, the Jamaican producer, artist, Lee Scratch Perry, who was um, a major um, figure in Bob Marley's development. He produced some of Marley's early album. In fact, what we tend to, us to identify as the Marley sound uh, scratches key, a key figure bringing that, that sound out of Marley. Um, I don't need to contextualize Lee Scratch Perry too much here. Um, so, but you might famously, you might remember that famously he built a studio in Kingston that he called the Black Ark, um, which was an amazing place of music and art uh, and gathering for uh, during the seventies, where people um, just gathered to talk uh, life and create art. Um, but one day, Scratch, on an impulse, decided to burn the studio down. And no one was able to, up until this day, he's in his late 80s now, still touring and being amazing. Um, no one is able to get out of him, but why did you do this? <laughs> um, I wanted to, in this way, create a poem in his voice, um, not focus so much on the destruction of the, the, the ark, but the building of it. And here's the poem, The Ark by Scratch. The genius says, build a studio. I build a studio from ash. I make it out of peril and slum things. I alone, when blood and bullet and all Christ fucking American dollar politicians start the pressure down to nothing. When the equator's confused and coke bubbles on tinfoil to cemented wreath. I built it. A conga drum so hollowed through the future pyramids up long before CDs spin away roots, men knocking down by the seaside like captives wheeling by the Keba River. The genie says, build a studio, but don't take any foul in it, just electric. So I make it. My echo chamber with shock rooms of rainbow King Arthur's sword keep in, and one for the Maccabees alone for covenant is born between man and worm. Next room is Stone Age, after that iron, and one I name Freeze. For too much ice downtown in the brains of all them crossing Duke Street, holy like Parsons. And in the circuit breaker, the red switches for death, and the black switches for death, and the master switches black and red. So if US, Russia, China, Israel talk, missiles talk, I talk that switch I call Melchizedek. I build a closet for the waterfalls, one for the rivers, another for oceans, next for secrets. The genie says, build a studio. I built it without go for wood. Now, Consider the nest of bees in the cranium of the gong. Consider the nest of wasps in the heart of the bush doctor. Consider the nest of locusts in the gut of the black heart man. I put them there. And the others that vibrate at the feast of the Passover, when the collie weed is passed over the roast fish and cornbread, I upset her. I jangle on the black wax. The super ape, E.T., I cleared the wave. Again, Consider the burning bush in the ears of Kalanji, 
and the burning sword in the mouth of the fireman, and the burning pillars in the eyes of the gargamel, I put them there to outlast earth as I navigate on one of Saturn's rings. I might a solid shadow setting fire to snow in my ark. I credit not the genie, but the coral rock. I'm an am stone. I am perfect. Myself is a vanishing conch shell speeding around a discotheque. At the embassy of angels, skeletons ramble to check out my creation dub. And sex is dub, stripped to the bone. And dub is the heart breaking the torso to, bring, to spring olive beaked to be eaten up by sunlight. Thank you. Jay Bernard. Uh, really happy to be here. It's my first time. Um, breeze nice. Uh, as I was walking through, I noticed that the tea shops very quaint and selling cannabis tea. <laughs> so things have changed. <laughs> yeah, things are looking good. Um, thank you for that, Aishin. It was amazing. And whenever you read that poem, I'm always like, yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly. And we'll talk about it afterwards. Um, I'm going to read from Surge, which is my new new collection, and it's also kind of informed by dub music, but it's also informed by the history of the Noon Crossfire, which happened in 1981. And um, when I came across this story, it really crystallised a lot of things for me. Um, it, it helped me make present. It helped me make sense of the present, because by going through the archive um, and um, kind of almost seeing things repeated or sort of certain ideas repeated but in a kind of older form. Um, it was incredibly um, incredibly powerful. Um, and I also just felt like it was important to just keep retelling this little piece of history. Actually, it's been told many times. There's films about it, documentaries about it. Um, but I felt like for this particular moment, particularly in the aftermath of Grenfell, it felt really important for me to keep telling that story. So um, I'm just going to read the poems all the way through. No need to clap in between. Okay. Arrival. Remember, we were brought here from the clear waters of our dreams that we might be named, numbered, and forgotten. That they gave us their first and last names that we might be called wogs. Made visible that we might be looked on with contempt, and to their minds, made flesh, that it might be stripped from our backs, kept hungry, that we might cry in our children's sleep, close our smoky mouths around their dreams, and swallow them as they gaze upon us, never to be full. Snap, crackle. Amen. Now shall we consult the life of a stranger. Now shall we see what can and cannot be kept. I take this morning from its box, see how the years have warped the edges, its middle pages conjoined at the text. I remove the rusted red paper clip, dry sponge its brittle red remains, unfold a liver of spotted note in copper ink, date it by the flaking electroset and amber glue, press each part to the flatbed scanner, wonder which words to file, the damp smoke and young bones under. I sometimes recognise a face from a high eight film. I'm introduced to she who squatted in the 70s, who made that speech, who remembers 81, when a crowd black as my hand gathered one morning came over Blackfriars Bridge, were heckled by the press. The year was still fresh, still screaming with its eyes closed. My brother dead, my brother dead, my brother dead, oh. My sister dead, my sister dead, my sister dead, oh. A white sleeve hack hung from that ledge to better spit at some kid who recalls it by their cup of archive wine. I take this January morning in my hands 
and wonder if it should go under London or England, Britain, British, Black British. Where to put the burning house, the child made ash, the brick in the back of the neck, the shit in the letterbox and the piss up the side of it. I file it under fire, corpus, body, house. How many times has Misty died? How many times has she given us life? How many children does Misty have? As many as the people here in this song. Hearing this song, I said they're hearing this song, I said they're listening in from beyond. Hearing this song, I said they're hearing this song, I said they're listening in from beyond. How many lovers does Misty have? As many as there are leaves on the trees. How many places has Misty lived? As many as there are names on the map. Names on the map, is there a names on the map? Is there a places that you can belong? Names on the map, is there a names on the map? Is there a places that you can belong? How many times have you seen her since? Never again, not in the same way. She used to be down in Deptford Market, laughing with the sellers all day. Haggling fish, so she's haggling rice, so she's good at driving down price. Haggling fish, so she's haggling rice, so she's good at driving down price. I haven't seen her, nor have you, not since the fire at 439. They said her daughter was gone for days, they wouldn't let her see the remains. And she came up in the morning, and she went down in the evening, and she came up with the rising of the sun. And she came up in the morning, and she went down in the evening, and when I turned around, she was gone. 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 The officer said, oh, it's very common for culprits to go missing. And I said, my son isn't a culprit, and how dare you imply it? And one of the officers got up and stood by the window and looked out. He didn't want to look us full in the eye. He made it clear. He made it clear from the moment he set foot in the house, the moment he set foot, what he thought of us. And when they came back a few days later, I think the Tuesday, I think the Tuesday, he said, he said, what was you wearing on the night of the fire? I said, probably your new trousers. He says, brown shoes? I said, yes. Yellow shirt? I said, yes. And he took some items from a plastic bag. He took your things from a plastic bag and he said, does this look like it? Does this look like it belongs to you? And I said, yes. And he says, do you recognize this key? I said, well, why don't we try it? And we put it in the lock and we struggled and it fit. Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I said, what are you sorry for? I want to see my son. We don't recommend that. Oh, we don't, we don't recommend that. We don't recommend that. And I said, I said, I said, I am your father, your father. I am your father and I want to see you. And they took me down to a room and on the table, there you were, no face, nothing to speak of. And I said, is this the body where you found the clothes? Nod, nod. So I said, this must be you. This must be my son. You came, Dad. I'd been lying there all night listening for you. When I opened my eyes, I was in the house and everything was black, Dad. I'd only been at the party a few hours and I didn't know about anything that had happened, Dad. And I felt someone touch me. And I was so stiff and I'd never felt so stiff before. And I tried to say, it's me, it's me, it's me. But they were looking at me so strangely, Dad. Like he couldn't stand to look at me, couldn't stand the sight of me. Police always looked at me like that, Dad. And they turned me over, and they took the shirt from under me, and they wrapped me in a blanket, and they drove me here. Across the table there are bodies, Dad, twisted, like screaming branches of a tree. And all night I heard them saying, I heard them say, and then you came. And I know you heard me because here we are. Come back. And don't bury me. I can't stand it. I can barely stand it when the lights go out and I'm lying here listening for you, Dad. I want to crawl between Mum and you in your bed, in your sheets. That's the only kind of burying I want.
Remember you were loved. Remember you were. I read that you were loved. I read that you were. And these are places that you've never been. And these are people that you never knew. So why does this feel like it happened? It happened to you. I came here when I was six. I was dark-skinned in a thin dress, and I loved my grandmother. She was my mother. And she raised me with my three sisters who still stand waving me goodbye. I was the first to come to England, and when I arrived, I knew, I knew something had happened to me, that I had been darkened and differently arranged. When I looked at myself in my new coat and boots, I saw, I saw something like a net that catches death. I was the child of two strangers with my last name. Two people in their house clothes telling me to wash my neck. I feel, I feel like I have to hold on and say, and say, don't let me die in England. I want to die with my grandmother. I want to be rotted by the sun. And I want to be shaded by her grief and I want her shadow to fall along my body. And I want the dogs to hanker for my bones. And I want to be eaten by worms and become an ackee tree. Lord, I said. I said it in such a whisper I could have put the ground to sleep. Don't let me die in England, I said to the pavement to the sea black rain, and never tell my grandmother why I never called, why I never called to say that I thought of her daily, that I suffered with the weight of all she had freely given. Many nights before this one, I wondered what she thought of that, what she thought of her youngest grandchild who couldn't say that many nights before this one, I tried to forget that I loved her, turn the pain of her remembrance to the bitter lie that she could not have loved one such as me. And the proof was in the distance. I am 17. And summer is still gold clap of hot body and hot body. Blue sky fries the tiny sun. I kiss myself for courage and duck into the parade and two dykes, smiling like young mothers, ask me my name. Our gazes lock on love, our slow wend among the cutoffs and the wrecked docks and the glinting nose rings and the head shaved to skin. What it was to me then, those bare arms, to have found them at last beneath a slow float, that mood, that heat, that pride. That was then, when it was us on the menu, heading to first out, salad of fierce look and full power lasagna, speaking with full mouth, queer, lesbian, dyke, offender of no gender, failed woman, black flag, bleach blonde, Sunday, happy Sunday. These days, I pass you in the street, though I want to turn around and say thank you for your tongue in my throat, for this thick and practiced arse and cunt, for my plaited scars and flat nipples. They call this a city. I call it the dark between two bodies. If mum is in the living room and sister is in the bedroom, then sentence says, Morning. The two have not yet said their first words. If sister is in the bedroom and mum is in the bathroom, then sentence says evening and sister is sat cross-legged by the door, drawing. If sister is in the kitchen, best friend also, unzipping fishbine from its studded silver flesh, then sentence says 
Then sentence says, then sentence says, the people have taken their hands away from their eyes and are stapling their mothers and sisters to the underpass wall. Their brothers and lovers and cousins to the underpass wall. Only the living, never the dead, to the underpass wall. Not rivers, towers of blood. Thank you. much both of you that was absolutely amazing um, so I want to ask about something that I think appears in different ways in both your work um, so Jay you're engaging with uh, very specific archival sources um, and there's a kind of reference to to the arc in two of your poems you likewise have the arc but there's a sort of archival nature in the way that you're thinking about the landscape of the Caribbean um, which has been, of course, affected by all sorts of, um, well, changes, let's say, to put it in a kind of neutral term. Um, what does the archive sort of mean, or how do you think about the kind of archival element or principle in both of your works? Can I start with you, Jen? Yeah, it's something that I, um, like, I, I think we're in a kind of another period of archive fever. So in the, I think in the 80s yeah. there was archive fever, and now there's another kind of resurgent. And so I found myself like almost subconsciously caught up in that. And I sort of then had to like step back and think about why it was so compelling as a concept. Yeah. And I think it's because there's something about, um, there's been a kind of like, I think sort of theoretical shift in terms of like how we understand the archive. I think it was once a place of scarcity when it came to like black and like Asian and minority ethnic people um, in Britain. And now I think it's a source of abundance and even courage. Um, the arc, like, if you, the actual, like, the, the, the idea of a notion is a kind of sense of origin, but it's also a deeply conservative term, actually. Um, and I think there's something in that kind of, like, pushback. I think the reason I say it's conservative is because the, I think the archival impulse to record is, is a kind of state, nation-building yeah. kind of impulse. Um, and so I think there's something to kind of, like, play with in that at the same time, I think, to subvert it. To be like, you know, here I am, you know, I, I am specific to this place, but I kind of haunt it back because I, I feel like I'm kind of trying to sort of take that conservative impulse and kind of speak back back, back to it. I, I really love, for example, that you talk about the destruction, like the burning of, of, of the archive um, and how that's like such a radical act to have no record. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what it means to me. But having kind of built this, then to vote it is quite interesting. Right. I think... Perhaps the bravest thing a, uh, an artist or a creator can do uh, to step away from a, a work so it doesn't become a fetish. Um, you know, once you've made it, you should have the kind of confidence that it is its own thing, and it might belong to a space or to, you know, to a people. In the case of say the Jamaican music, mm. um, but the, the, you, he hasn't destroyed the music. He has destroyed a space that the music was created in, uh, speaking of Lee Scratch Perry, um, but he, I'm sure, has the confidence that he has created strong, enduring music, um, which he had found too. In a sense, you could think of, Lee, I think Lee Scratch would probably think of himself as a, as a, um, as a sort of, a, in his name, Scratch, you know, that's mm -hmm. coming from his, Things start from the scratch, that's what he would say. Yeah, begin from, from nothing. But saying that is acknowledging too that something must have existed. And I, I also agree with the, the kind of conservative notion of the archive because as a, as a poet or a creator of any kind, one is a, a sort of selector. You've been highly selective. And what gets into a poem um, begins with a, a conscious choice, but the implications are, are vast. You, you can't quite say what it is that two words go together would create what kinds of different meanings of interpretations. You know? um, so trusting oneself to step away from or even destroy those words probably is the true test of their endurance. Um, 
it's it's more particular as it concerns music. Yeah. Um, for me, which mm. is the first sort of archive I I I, yeah. I was introduced to. Mm. Um, you know the the folk songs <coughs> and and so on. Um, and of course, by the time I was hearing these uh, forms of music from the Jamaican songbook, um, the language had already changed. You know, they had sort of become folk idiom, and um, and but because I new words entered my vocabulary because of those uh, songs, uh, it just gave me another way to enter into the history that. Um, the landscape itself might not present immediately, you know. You might see in some pellets of Jamaica sugar, plant, uh, sugar cane uh, being grown, um, but um, that might not by itself signify what, what, what happened here, you know. Um, but the weight of that history remains, and to hear a word like cane in a song brings the density of that of history home alive because of the rhythm and so on. So the archive is, is, is in a way metaphysical. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that the thing that's worth throwing in mind, I guess, is the difference between, the his, between history and an archive. Right. I mean, I guess you're dealing with an archive for the George Padmore Institute where this is, as far as I understand it, um, a kind of, a, a sort of almost trying to, to um, protect a history that was potentially going to be lost in the wake of the new crossfire. So documents and um, sort of aspects of, uh, well, like, yeah, artifacts essentially, right, from the sort of um, People's Day of Action, Black People's Day of Action. Um, and then also, I guess, in your case, with the, the sort of history is dismantled music and music dismantling history, mm -hmm. um, that somehow the relationship between the archive is something that um, both kind of tries to keep a memory or a thought alive, but also is, it has an anti-conservative gesture too um, in those unacknowledged histories, in those places of silence. And I, I want to ask about silence in both of your works as well. Um, certainly, Aishan, in the case of your work in thinking about the kind of um, the silence around those, the cane cutters who you're referring to in the work and the unacknowledged history as a result of slavery, um, particularly, and also the ways in which um, the legacy of slavery has created some really fascinating characters as well yeah. in the work that you've produced. Um, and likewise, in, in your work, Jay, that the kind of the tension between how does one reconstruct silence for those who are unable to speak, who actually cannot speak for themselves, I guess there's a kind of ethical question there, mm -hmm. isn't there, between how we think about um, speaking or, or how poets enter into that space of silence. Do you want say a bit about, about that, perhaps. It's, so, it's such a, an interesting question, because I think this, the reason that I think this kind of archival work is compelling is because it sits at a set of almost ineffable intersections, right? It's really hard when, when, when you look at one to see the others, you know what I mean? You know, and that cliche about the stars, and if you're looking directly, you can't see the light. Mm. Um, I sometimes feel like that's kind of it. So I, I, that sentence you just said about reconstructing silence is actually mm. a big part of, I think, what I'm sort of trying to do. Like, for me, the archive is not only a place of um, documentation or record keeping or whatever, but also a place of contemplation. Um, and it's a place where you can kind of commune and convene with this other history or this, these other lives. Um, and also, I think there's something really important about what you mute and what you bring to the fore. So, for example, in the early, and this is to do with your ethical, the ethical issues of using the archive, in the early um, drafts of this, I, I almost kind of wanted to do that thing of documentation and telling history. Mm -hmm. But actually, I realised that, that that political stuff would was a byproduct of something else, okay? Yeah. So I had to look at the personal, the quiet, and I had to reconstruct the silent moments, right? Mm -hmm. So, so many of the poems are really people talking back to the living in quite mundane circumstances, yeah. you know, they're in like a kitchen or a yeah. bedroom or whatever. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to recreate those quiet domestic moments. Yeah. And in much the same way that an archive is really the byproduct of state machinations and, mm -hmm. and activity, I felt like this book had to be the kind of byproduct of, of a certain kind of contemplation mm. rather than a kind of conscious documentation. 
because I feel like that conscious documentation is a bit problematic, actually. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, if I think a conscious, consciously created archive is not an archive at all. It's something else. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it quite does that mysterious kind of, like you say, metaphysical work yeah. um, in quite the same way. Right, right. I think I, I also think about it is um, silence does not in itself um, mean uh, voicelessness. Right, or, or without voice, um, we we can read uh, the silence of um, the silence of, of say the, our intimates, and and be able to uh, generate a way a response to that kind of silence. The challenge though is is how it would how the, the reading comes out, what it is that we, we we make of the silence, and at times too that silence is a form of resistance. Um, a refusal to participate in some dialogic structure between powers, right? Because um, it's not that, that, yes, it is true, the imperial colonial um, um, power structure is to silence the, 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 the individual or the, the, the community, but the I think that the community can absorb such silence or has absorbed such silence and, and to, as a form of way to refuse to, to participate in um, a kind of unfair um, dialogue that would emerge if the, the, the silence then speaks. Because you don't have, how, you know, this, the, 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 it's, the, it's so unbalanced, the, it's the, mm. the, um, the, the structures, right? And, um, yeah, you know, also that cliche of, um, say, uh, Miles Davis saying, the greatest challenge is to know what note not to play, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's the, the, the difficult um, approach that the, the, create, uh, the, that the creative impulse, because you want to sort of make the all-encompassing and the history is so untold and so on and so forth that you want to, to own it all and to divulge everything. And who knows, you might be creating narratives that have not, in the way that a poem can, uh, um, create lyric energy that ricochets further than um, what uh, a story is able to, to, to pronounce. Mm -hmm. and, um, and music, yeah. I keep going, returning yes. to it because it, it, it does possess that power to um, has the, the lyric expansiveness mm -hmm. and it's so luminous yeah. um, and at times might not require words yeah. to communicate. Yes. Um, the patterning of a, of a bass line, of a reggae, mm -hmm. um, expresses so much the, 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 what needs to be imagined about, say, the, the transatlantic crossing, mm -hmm. you know, the deep heavy bass could in ways bring to a listener that terrible underwater journey, that the darkness of beneath the, the holes of boats, right? So the, the music has that, that depth uh, and thickness to it uh, that uh, a bass line patterned that in, that in such a way to evoke, right? That a word would just, a, a language that, oh, they were screaming and, and pain might you know, sentimentalized importantly, but in some ways undermined as well. Yeah. I, I, and I think what you just said there about the, the, the political uses of silence is, yeah. is really important because obviously we've had uh, 24 Grenfell silent marches now. Wow. Um, they've been every single month, um, you know, and I went to the anniversary just last month in, in June. Um, and it was, I, I don't know if you've ever been on one of the silent marches, but there is something incredibly powerful yeah. about not having to speak. Yeah about letting the event speak for itself. They've covered up the tower now, you know? Um, and that's, I think, a kind of like, sort of silencing of the grim reality of it. Yeah. But also I think there was part of the, the reason that the Black People's Day of Action came about, which was the march that went through London um, on the 2nd of, 2nd of March, 1981, just a few months after the fire, um, was the silence, right? Yeah. So literally it's like questions like, why is the press silent? Yes. Why yeah. is Margaret yeah. Thatcher silent? Why yeah. is the Queen silent? Yeah. You know, what's going on there? I want to ask you a little bit about something you touched on there um, just now to do with address um, and the expansiveness 
um, partly through song and the way that song and music collectivize perhaps the kind of individual or, or in fact lyric begins with the individual um, but then moves out into to something larger. Um, in both of your works, in different ways, you're, you're thinking about, again, about um, address and specific, um, specific audiences, perhaps, that are going to have different responses to the work that you're producing. Um, interventions, if you like, whether that's into a particular landscape, a particular um, history, a particular epic history, particularly in your work, um, but also in your case, dealing with sort of historical, um, terrible realities um, in a really kind of brave and moving way. In terms of just sort of Anglophone, let's say poetry, more widely. Who do you feel that you're addressing, or or how might that address differ? Do you think for others who are listening to your work? Uh, do you mean it in terms of uh, specific poets, or but how you situate yourself within yeah. a kind of tradition, and who oh, are you, who your work yeah. is reaching, who it's speaking to? Yeah, I used to be a lot more have anxieties around that. Uh, <laughs> Not so much um, anymore, only because uh, I, when I look at the Caribbean mm -hmm. as a whole and how fertile the, the, the traditions are, and I mean, there's a richness that I haven't been able to fully tap into yet. We, we can talk about one island mm -hmm. and the various traditions in one place, uh, and you go up the, the Antilles and in other languages, uh, uh, whole other traditions. So um, knowing that I am uh, situated and belong to a space that um, not only uh, is so full and brimming with possibilities, mm -hmm. but um, for the most part has realized some of those possibilities in certain figures, mm -hmm. you know, the Glissant, the Erna Broadburn, um, the, you go to, to Cuba and you, you know, it's so much, right? And situated as an American poet as well. Right. Yes, well, yeah, exactly. Yes, 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 true, because I do think of uh, the Caribbean as belonging to the Americas. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. Whitman is much of, of an important yeah. voice uh, to a certain poetics um, necessary in that elevation, mm -hmm. you know, because um, I think, you know, yes, I, the poet elevates, the, the language has to be lifted out of its stasis, uh, and whoever does that well, I like, <laughs> I, you know, um, you know, so, and it's, it's, it's interesting because you can have some corny poets who, who, who is able to, to convey that sense of uh, a surge in language. And I, I think the poet sort of bides the time to make use of um, someone who might even think as a passé mm -hmm. at some moments, you know what I mean? Um, but, but I feel uh, the, 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 as I would say this, um, if I were to self-define, it would, I would place my position as uh, someone who belongs to the Black Atlantic, mm -hmm. or even more uh, emphatically, the Global South. Yeah. So the histories converge mm -hmm. um, and in, you know, from various points uh, where black bodies were uh, trans transported uh, to be dislocated and located in uh, and into new um, dimensions that have become themselves black spaces, yeah. right? We are running out of time. I feel we should at least throw it open to one person, perhaps, in the audience who is dying to ask an excellent question. Or, no, Jay, right, you can respond to the question. <coughs> no, no, go ahead, Jay. You want to respond yeah, to that go on. Yeah, I mean, I could really talk about this question all day long. Yeah. Um, in terms of my who I'm speaking to, I think there's three answers to that. The first one is I grew up I'm a spoken word sort of scene, right? So all of my work is always directed to an audience of some kind, and a live one, I suppose, um, even though I quite emphatically write for the page. I think it's important there's a crossover. Yeah. Um, this, the, the singing and the song, it's like, you know, my ragged, shaking, nervous voice, but also uh, the, the, that it's almost like a kind of little point of memory for people, you know? Like I've done a whole solo show where it's, the same songs come back over and over and over again. I think that's really important for an audience. 
And I think the third one is like, I'm black British. So I'm interested in this place, this country, and I really want everything I do to be this, this place because I'm really concerned with this place. Yeah. And I think if there, was a, uh, if there were two things that I would really emphasize in terms of that, that I would love people to take away, it's first of all the entwining of this black British history and queer history as well. These things are inseparable in search. They are together and they, I don't think you can talk about them as different things. Mm. Um, and I've tried really hard to make that make that the case. But second, anybody who feels that this point of arrival, this this, this arrival myth, you know, this this Windrush myth, um, is is wearing thin, um, and actually we're at a point where our place in this country and in this what we understand as British is changing, and we don't know where it's going. <laughs> you know, that is those are the people I'm speaking to. That was extraordinary. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking. Hushin Hushin. Hushin.